They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone, this is B. Jemine, aka The Terrible Aussie, and welcome back to episode 21 of Bean vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where I dissect every remake re-edit, reimagining, homage, spoof, and unofficial follow-up, and so much more to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead, across all media. Alrighty, we're now at episode 21 now, everyone. We've already passed the milestone 20th episode of the show. We're continuing on this journey of exploring all things Night of the Living Dead. And I'm very excited for this one, because for this episode of the show, we're going back to the literary world of all things Night of the Living Dead for this episode. But before we actually go into the topic tonight, I have a very special guest who is joining me for the very first time on this show. And she is someone who is a writer and podcaster. And that, of course, is the one, the only, Miss Stephanie Crawford. Hello, Stephanie. How are you? Welcome to Bead vs. the Living Dead. Oh, hello. How are you doing? I'm, I'm okay here. I, I was a little excited for this cool guest, uh, this special guest, but... Uh, I'll fill in. (laughs) Well, I'm very glad that you're here, Stephanie, because when I was developing this show, I always had, you were definitely one of the people I had in mind to be a possible guest for an episode. So I'm very glad that you you decided to join me for the show and also picking a really good topic for us to uh, do tonight and especially picking the one specific Night of the Living Dead related project we're talking about this one because I'm very excited to talk about this one. Yeah, me too. Um, I thought this was a terrific coloring book. I had a lot of fun with uh, all the different options and uh yeah, that, I, I was surprised uh, you want to talk about coloring book, but you know, I, I'm down for a challenge. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I'm, I'm going to the all the nooks and crannies of all things Night of the Living Dead, and it only just seemed like a, log- a logical conclusion to finally go into the coloring book world of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> you know, bad jokes aside, do you know if that exists? Because it kind of seems like a shoe in from her I, I. I don't know. I may. I'll have to look this up during the course of the show, but I won't be surprised if there is. If there isn't, I may have to develop that right away and, and put it up somewhere because that does sound yes. too good of an idea not to do. <laughs> Fantastic idea, and I only need forty percent. So exactly, we exactly. You'll get a you'll you'll get a percentage of that for the uh, to for sparking the idea. So, <laughs> but um, well, like I said, I'm glad you're here for this episode 
of the show, Stephanie. Before we get into what our topic is tonight, I have a very important question I need to ask you, and it's one that I ask every new guest who comes on this very show, and that, of course, is, Stephanie, do you remember the first time you saw the original 1968 version of Night of the Living Dead? I absolutely do. Bad news is it's not that fascinating. It it wasn't, uh, uh, I don't know, too unusual a story. I think a lot of people uh, can relate to it, but uh, I had just started watching horror movies. My parents let me so I could watch them more openly. I could watch Cinemax without keeping it a secret and rent some horror films. But Night of the Living Dead was one of those pillars that I hadn't gotten to yet. And uh, coming up on Halloween, it started being advertised on television, like, you know, Friday night, Night of the Living Dead. I was like, this is my chance. I- I'm going to see it. I'm going to see the zombie movie, heck, the horror movie, and I'm going to learn so much. And, you know, I, I never had anything against uh, black and white films when I was young. I I always found a lot of charm in the older movies, and I was expecting it to be charming. So I watched it a little arrogant, you know, excited, but a little arrogant, and it scared the crap out of me. No joke. I was alone in the house at night. Um, I was going to say it's raining, but that might just be hyperbole that I'm making up in my memory. But I was alone (laughs) at night and I was truly scared. And that impressed me so much. And it still creeps me out. I've seen it how many times I couldn't tell you, but it still gets to me. And I became a huge, not only fan of the film, but of George Romero after that. Oh, definitely, definitely. And um, I'm sort of trying to think like, because when I first saw it for the first time, I've already talked about this before on the show. It actually, I believe, might have been either the second or third zombie film I ever saw. But the the very first one I did watch for the show, which will be an episode uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks, is Return of the Living Dead Part 2. That was the first zombie film I ever saw. And when I got around to watching Night of the Living Dead, I just assumed, okay, it's going to be... You know, it's going to be this fun horror film with zombies. And for the first two halves, it was. But as soon as uh, it got to that sort of that third act of the story, I, I realized this movie has taken very much a very dark turn. And I was not expecting this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was a spiritual sequel now that I'm watching this. I saw that one before I saw Return of the Living Dead. So not quite the shocker, but... I, I kind of like seeing a lesser sequel first, because then you're, like, extra impressed <laughs> by the one preceding it. Yeah, well, I think that kind of seems like a common thing with um with with us horror fans. And this was something I was actually literally thinking about the other day. It's like, for it's very rare that I've actually seen a horror franchise from the actual first film through all of it. I think with some of the ones that, when I started becoming a horror fan in my teens... A lot of the horror films that I watched, I watched a lot of sequels from franchises out of sequence. Like uh, I saw the very first Friday the 13th film I saw was Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. And I believe, I think it was either Halloween H2O or Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers might have been my first Halloween film, I think. And yeah. Return of the Living Dead Part 2 was my first from that series, but then I saw Return of the Living Dead Part 3, so I never saw the first one until, yeah, after I saw those two films. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> that is confusing. Yeah, I think like Leprechaun 3, Friday the 13th Part 3. Actually, a lot of threes were my first. Oh, yeah, definitely. But I think actually now that I think about it, I think Friday the... Uh, not Friday the 13th. Um, <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street, I believe, might have actually been one of the like sort of the old horror franchises actually watched from the very first throughout because I, yeah, because I think one night here on, here in Australia when they were doing, on one of the cable channels, they were actually showing the first three films back to back and I'd never seen them before. So I ended up with a friend of mine and I, we watched the first three that night and it was a boss kind of actually see a franchise from its very beginnings <laughs> to <laughs> its next two sequels because i can imagine if i want to say part four or part five or freddy's dead first and then went to the first a nightmare on elm street i probably would be very confused <laughs> about the massive tonal shift between this franchise oh man yeah there there has to be a study done about this <laughs> yes but, uh, but I think it's something that, yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> which is uh, kind of a precursor to our topic for the episode tonight, because speaking of Return of the Living Dead, now we're not going to be talking about the first film for this episode. That's going to be a future episode that will be coming very soon. However, though, I we're going to be talking about the book that it is kind of, sort of, partially, only, in title only, based on, which of course is the 1978 novel, Return of the Living Dead, written by John A. Russo. Yep, co-writer of the original. And yeah, you look into the background of it, and it's very cavolted. Indeed, indeed. Well, I think what's... uh. Interesting. Like, we'll go into sort of our thoughts on the book, like our first initial thoughts on the book in a sec. But I think what's interesting about the whole, why this book came about, because after sort of from based on the information I've read, so if I'm completely wrong out there, please forgive me if I am. Uh, but after when Night of the Living Dead was released, John A. Russo and George A. Romero kind of decided to split the title of The Living Dead. So pretty much... John A. Russo kept the Of the Living Dead part of the title, while George A. Romero would just name any future installments from the franchise just Of the Dead. So that's why if you look at all the post-films from that, from Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead and all that, they only are called that instead of, say, Dawn of the Living Dead and all that. So because John A. Russo actually owned the Of the Living Dead part of the title, if that makes any sense. Uh, so pretty much the same year that George A. Romero's film Dawn of the Dead came out in 1978, John A. Russo, of course, released his sequel novel to the original film, Return of the Living Dead. Now, I think a lot of people, like I said before, are kind of shocked when they find out that the film Return of the Living Dead is based on a book. But there's a good reason why most people wouldn't even think about that, because, well, the book and the film, even though John A. Russo was involved with both projects, the only similarity that these two have is just the title, and that's about it, really. So, but the question is, though, is the book, the original book version of A Return of the Living Dead, a good read or not? So, Stephanie, what are your thoughts on the original 1978 novel, Return of the Living Dead by John A. Russo? 
Uh, well, I, I went in not really knowing much about it. I was excited to read this because it seemed like a big mi- missing piece of this very important franchise that means so much to me. And yeah, it took some legal fina- finagling, but the fact that they both walked away with sequel rights is kind of amazing. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And uh, yeah, do not come into this book uh, thinking it will be a fun romp with uh, naked punk rockers running around. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a very straightforward meat and potatoes horror exploitation book. It's set about 10 years after the events of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, things are pretty much back to normal. Um, whatever caused the outbreak uh rocket ship to venus or (laughs) whatever they decided cost it um people have been basically moving on except for uh some religious sects who make sure to spike people in the head to make sure they don't come back um and it turns out they do and uh this is just um i i guess john russo had kind of a pattern of writing a book for it expressly to be turned into a movie like he did this with the majorettes and some other mm. things, and that was the purpose of this as well. And you can tell it, the descriptions of people are very much about how they look. Uh, they're pretty straightforward. You could tell a lot of room is left for that to be like expanded upon um, through actors, I suppose. Mm. You know, it's it's not a great book. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it has a lot of <laughs> issues. Uh, it needed a lot more editing, but again, it it feels like someone kind of uh, getting a script ready. In my opinion, it, it has some really chilling ideas, uh, very memorable scenes in it. You know, it and it's absolutely worth a read if you're a fan of the Romero franchise or the Return franchise or I don't know <laughs> zombies in general. I I guess I would label it essential reading. I'm very happy I got to it. But just as a read, um, I don't know. There wasn't really any surprises. I don't like to guess what's going to happen ahead of a book, but I kind of unfortunately saw most of it coming. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it uh, as literature by itself. Well, I wasn't sure what to expect from the book as well. Like I, I like you, I knew exactly that it wasn't going to be anything like the 1985 film of the same name because, like I said, they're both, other than the title, they're both completely separate properties. So I was very curious to hear, like when I sat down to read it, to see how, like how it was going to be different from that film. And I do agree with you in a lot of ways because... I, I think overall I did enjoy the book for what it is as this kind of pulpy, enjoyable horror novel with zombies. But you're right, though. It definitely does come across, though, as a book that definitely was written just so it could be made into a film. So when I was doing my research on this book, there is also another book out there that John A. Russo released, which is actually the screenplay version of the book. And yeah, the, so, novel, the novelization, or no, the uh, no, no. Like, yeah, it was like the, uh, the, the I, well, I, I know, know it's <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I didn't get a chance to like, I know it's a you can buy it, like, I saw a couple of links of it on um on Amazon, but I didn't get a chance to buy the screenplay version. But I'd be kind of curious to read that as well because I could definitely see your point that it definitely does feel 
as I said before, it was def- it's definitely like this book was written so the idea could be out there so it can be turned into a movie. And it doesn't surprise me at all that John A. Russo also probably wrote the screenplay first, then turned it into a book. And so he already had them both there, hoping that that the book would be successful enough that it would want to be made into a film. And eventually it would have, but of course there would be a lot of major changes behind it and would become the film that we all know and love today. But as a read on its own, like I said, I do, I did enjoy it overall, but there definitely is some flaws within it. I did like the fact that it really does continue on from where Night of the Living Dead sort of finished, like, but 10 years later. So a lot of the things that were in that film are still carried through into this book, especially when it comes to uh, the zombies. And I like the fact that throughout most of it, uh, John A. Russo describes the zombies every now and again as either ghouls or humanoids. Yes. And then, of course, every now and again, a character would would say zombies. But it's more like the ghouls and humanoids of what he kind of refers them as throughout the book. And also the way it's structured is very interesting as well, which we'll go into the plot of the book very soon. And yeah, the characters are pretty thin. Like they're kind of your stock kind of characters you would find in most zombie projects. But I got to remember though, at the same time, like since this book came out, there has been a lot of different uh, and so many zombie novels and zombie films and TV shows. So when you kind of go back to read this book, it does feel very cliched, but at the same time though, it was kind of like before a lot of these uh, films and TV shows and books also came out. So probably at the time, it probably would have felt very fresh and unique. But when you kind of read it by today's standards, it does feel kind of pretty standard in terms of a zombie story. But that being said, though, I I still enjoyed it overall. Like you said, there was a lot of memorable moments throughout. Yeah, it is predictable, but I liked where some aspects of the story would go. And every now and again, it would surprise me on occasion. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it overall as a fun sort of pulpy kind of horror horror novel. But yeah, it definitely does have its issues for sure. Yeah, that's a great point because I think at this period of time, pretty much Italian filmmakers own the zombie concept. They seem to be the only ones really excited about it and consistently making media about mm. zombies. So yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And I also think... <laughs> We could get in a time machine and go tell Russo, listen, the movie about this isn't going to remotely be like this. Because it feels like it's kind of written with a small budget in mind, uh, mm. just with like the controlled locations and everything. <laughs> if we said, you can go hog wild, don't worry about any of that. I, I think it would uh, probably be, you know, quite a different book and probably stronger. But um, yeah, it is lean and mean, very mean. This is a very bleak Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, most of the characters are absolutely horrible, just as bad as the zombies, if not worse. Uh, it's in that kind of wheelhouse. Um, yeah, no, uh, I'm not trying to. I, I think I seemed a little harsh on it. I'm just trying to temper expectations. You know? Yeah, I can this understand that. It's a very that. Yeah. short book that had a very specific purpose. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, and I think that's probably the best way to go into it because I think if people go into it to expect it like to be this great zombie novel you're not going to get that but if you're looking for one that's just a fun 
Uh, I guess fun is probably a loose term I would give because, like you say, it, it can be very bleak and even mean-spirited at times as well. But, yeah, in terms of, like, being an engaging zombie story, uh, it, it still filled that quota for me because, you know, I'm a sucker for all that type of stuff. But, yeah, I mean, even compared to something like Dawn of the Dead, which is just a masterpiece in terms of its story, its characters, and themes... Like, if you can kind of compare that film and also this book, since they both came out the same year together, you would say, oh, yeah, Dawn of the Dead is far more superior because it's much more interesting in a lot of ways compared to Return of the Living Dead, the book, because it was, you know, it's pretty simple in terms of a zombie story. I do think at the same time, though, like, the story itself still touches on some themes that were explored in Night of the Living Dead, and we would also see explored in other Romero zombie films as well. So I like that at least um, Russo did still do that in regards to this story as well. Yeah, I, I really found that divergence interesting because, yes, Romero gets a lot of credit, deservedly so, for tackling kind of big societal issues in each one. And um, Don, it was consumerism, among other things, but... To me, Russo's approach was he seemed to want to continue the focus Night of the Living Dead had with the breakdown of society. How, uh, you know, human it just takes a little bit of unrest to turn humans into monsters. He seemed very fascinated with that aspect of it. Where Romero seemed a little bit more interested mm. in having that be part of it, but he wanted to tackle some other big issues. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I guess... Um... Since this book has been out since 1978, uh, we can go into sort of the plot summary of this one. So in terms, so people can understand the plot of this, and we'll chime in with our thoughts of the story throughout. Uh, pretty much like we've already both stated, the novel takes place 10 years after the events of Night of the Living Dead. And pretty much you find out that the zombie outbreak only kind of happened in a very specific area in the sort of the rural areas of Pittsburgh nowhere else and it was contained pretty quickly but then we find out that they still don't know exactly how all this happened like they still go on about the venus probe may have had something to do with it but again it's still left ambiguous in terms of exactly what happened then we're introduced to the miller family which of course is the dad bert and his three daughters uh sue ellen and and Karen, who is pregnant, and <laughs> you never want to see that in a zombie story. Oh yeah, definitely not, definitely not. So they go. The dad is Bert is definitely not impressed that his daughter, youngest daughter Karen is pregnant, and they're on their way to a funeral for a young girl. And they get there, and the service goes as you know, as you would expect a funeral service to go. But then it starts to take a turn when. Uh, the Reverend, Reverend Michaels, and one of his other parishioners bring out a giant spike and a mallet, and they give it to the the dead girl's dad, and they spike the girl in the head. And I think that's actually a really interesting way to kind of start off this story, because you don't actually see that coming, because it kind of starts off pretty simple as just a normal funeral. But then, of course, once they introduce the mallet and the spike, that's when it's like, oh, okay, this is like, we're definitely in a post-Night of the Living Dead world because pretty much anyone dies. The 
the people of this congregation use spikes to kill the brain so they don't come back from the dead. Oh, I fully agree. The opening uh, is the strongest part of the book, in my opinion. It it, it got my expectations very high. Um, I even like how they had a modified prayer as basically, may the body never rise again, release the soul into heaven and all else turn to dust. Like basically, please don't let this little girl turn into a zombie. And uh, they actually had the father spike her head while she's laying in her coffin. I actually teared up a little bit. It was Mm. written very sensitively and just putting yourself in that situation. It's like, oh my God, like, how do you go through that? So yeah, the, oh, yeah. the setup was really fantastic. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think you're right in how it's written is it and how the characters are portrayed. It is treated as a very serious and sensitive thing. And you can definitely feel, and that I will give John A. Russo credit for the character's, in this book, when it comes to how the characters deal with loss and grief, it it is handled pretty well and believable, especially if they happen to lose somebody who is killed by the zombies or that they become a zombie themselves. From here, a, a young boy comes to the funeral. He lets everyone know that there's been a bus accident full of other par- parishioners. Everyone on the bus is dead. So pretty much the entire congregation all gets into their trucks, gets all their spikes and mallets and heads straight to the bus crash. And after a little while, uh, Sheriff McCullen, who is a character who was introduced in the original Night of the Living Dead, he makes his return here. And then he hears about the bus crash. So he goes to the side of where it is and he finds that, that all the bodies are gone, but there are footprints everywhere. So he and his men go out to look, and in the at the same time, the Miller girls, Sue, Sue Ellen and Anne, but not Karen because she was left behind because she was pregnant, them, their father, and all the other congregation have taken the, the bodies of everyone from the bus crash and have been trying to put spikes into all of their heads. Pretty much they are able to only do, I believe, about 13 of them. So mm-hmm. there was 21 that didn't get spike but of course once the police get closer to them they decide to all run off so again it's like you say this opening to this novel really pretty much grabs your attention right away because like it is a pretty kind of horrific scene that these people come to this bust and desecrate these dead bodies by putting spikes in their heads but knowing that this is a world where people are afraid that another zombie outbreak is going to happen. And from the sounds of it, it has, there hasn't been any since 1968. So it's always that fear in the back of their mind. So you can understand the urgency of why they want to do this so that these people are still rest, still can be, be rested in peace. But also, again, another outbreak doesn't happen. Yeah, no, th- this was another uh, fantastic scene of getting the book into gear because it's it's pretty graphic. They don't just say, oh, they, they popped on over and uh, they talk about having to drag the bodies, how hard it is to do it, how no one really wants to do it. But these are really a very traumatized people. They, mm. They've been told by the news and everyone that's like, well, 
Ooh, that was terrible, but past uh, whatever causes moved on. They're like, huh, no, I, I had to bury half my family and my neighbors. Uh, I am not letting that happen again. And he didn't go into it too deeply in this book. I almost thought it he was going to focus on religion more. Like maybe mm. they became zealots. Um, but no, they, they're kind of just really sensible, <laughs> it turns out. Oh, definitely, definitely. And from here... Uh, Sheriff McCullen and his deputy, Deputy Green, are sort of looking more into what happened to the bodies. Like, they definitely have an idea who it is, but of course, you know, they have to investigate it thoroughly before they can make any kind of yeah. assumptions. And then, of like, course, the press are like, no, all their stuff is here. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the press arrive. And then later that night, uh, Sheriff McCullen's at the bar with Green. They pretty much watch the whole news broadcast on the news. They leave, and then while this is happening, they hear a commotion going on, and it is a woman who's been attacked and being robbed by two men. So they try to stop them, but during the course of it, uh, Deputy Green gets killed, the woman gets killed, and also uh, Sheriff McCullen ends up shooting both the men. And from there, the bodies of all of them all go to the morgue and the funeral parlor, along with the the bodies of the bus accident victims who haven't been spiked. And while they're there, they start to come alive and they kill the mortician and his assistant, and they move on into the night. And I love and I love the fact with this book, again, the book never really specifies like why the zombies are coming back. Like I said before, this is 10 years without incident. There has been no other zombie outbreaks that have happened. So the zombies have decided to rise again. And I like the fact that, it, it, again, it's never explained. So it continues the ambiguity of what was established in the original film. Yeah, uh, we're pretty much put in the exact same position as the characters in the books are. We don't know why it's happening and I did love the mortuary scene, uh, something I liked and reminded me a little bit of the Return of the Living Dead film was he was very descriptive in how the zombies woke up, how their bodies moved, how they had to kind of adjust uh, the lack of actually having living tissue, how they had to figure out to move that. And I, I was very fascinated by uh, how detailed he was in explaining that I really like that. And I remember Dan O'Bannon, uh, he was talking about he had health problems. And when he was working on the script uh, for Return, he like, you know, like it hurts to be dead. You know, it was very important for him to kind of be like, you know, I, I've dealt with chronic pain and I kind of wanted to put that in the film. And to me, this kind of reminded me of it, just like how hard it is to move, how kind of excruciating it probably is to be a, a zombie or a humanoid. And I, I also thought that was one of the most compelling parts, especially because uh, the zombies aren't very fleshed out uh, later on. I mean, I guess there's only so much you can do. So I thought this was a very important part for them because it uh, really brought into mind that these were living people and now they are something else. <laughs> hmm. Exactly, exactly. And also, like you say, like how John A. Russo describes not only the zombies, but the gore as well like he's very descriptive and so you have a pretty good idea visually of what the zombies and also the zombie attack scenes look like 
And also, continuing on from Night of the Living Dead, uh, the ghouls in this version, they still continue like what the previous ones did in the original film, is that they do tend to use weapons as well, because one of the zombies, which is, I believe, was the woman who was attacked and robbed, uh, she, when she wakes up and kills one of the one of the morticians, she uses... I uh, keep forgetting what it's called, but it, she does use a knife against them. So I like the fact that in this version of the story, like it still continues that of the zombies like Karen in the original film, they if there is a weapon around, they will use it against their prey. Yeah, it connects them to their previous humanity, I think, because especially mm. with her just being attacked, she probably had some, I, I guess, muscle memory or something like that of defending herself, which is probably what compelled her to kind of grasp at something to attack with. So yeah, details like that are very effective. Actually, now that you say that, that makes total sense almost being like a memory kind of pulse for her because when she is being attacked by the robbers before she's killed, she actually grabs one of the legs of the robbers before she's killed. So it's an instinctual type thing. And I, again, now that I think about it, that would definitely be kind of a callback to that scene in that regard. And now, yeah, actually, that kind of actually adds more to the scene now when she attacks the mortician. But um, from here, though, we go back to the Millers and they're at their farm and Bert is watching and the girls are watching the news about the zombie outbreak starting up again. So Bert decides to board up all the doors and windows. Uh, Karen feels very uneasy about this. And so and the other girls are as well. Sue Ellen decides that she's going to leave. So when Bert is asleep, in his rocking chair, she packs up her gear, uh, unboards the the front door, and then she sets out into the night to head to town so she can get away. And then later on during the story, Ed and Karen are upstairs. They hear a commotion downstairs, and then they hear their dad screaming, and they go downstairs and find that Bert is being killed and devoured by zombies. And also, when... John A. Russo describes Bert's death in this scene. Again, it is so descriptive, especially the part where he describes that one of his eyes is looking up at the ceiling, but his other eye, there's nothing in the socket, and I be- and there's just ooze dripping out of it. Like It was just like a really cool description, and I could just visualize that as, as I was reading it. Yeah, he he did seem very interested in talking about the deaths and gore, which, of course, is a horror fan you appreciate. Bert wasn't a great father. He was abusive. Uh, You know, he, under the guise of wanting the girls to be self-sufficient, strong, he just took it way too far and was cruel to them. So on one hand, you kind of get that satisfaction, like when an asshole dies in a story. You're like, yeah, that's what you get. But then you're like oh no, now they are alone. <laughs> they have a, one of them is pregnant. And what is going to happen to them? Yeah, uh, especially I, I think the first act of this, boy, it just, it, it's off like a rocket. Like the pacing is wonderful, like really nail biting. It, it's hard to put down. And I think that's the book's biggest strength because uh, it's just fantastic at putting you right in the horror. 
and uh, quickly. It doesn't ease, ease you into it at all. Like uh, the water doesn't boil around you. It, you get thrown into the boiling pot. Oh, definitely, definitely. And also kind of a thing that I find interesting about the book is it changes perspectives as the story goes on. You think, okay, Karen is going to be our main focus because she's kind of featured prominently throughout the first part. But then, of course, we focus on Sheriff McCullen for a little while. Then we go back to Karen and the sisters after that. And then not to spoil what comes next because we'll get that very soon. The perspectives of the who our main character is just changes a lot. And I thought that was actually a pretty interesting thing to kind of switch up the characters. Or like Because we don't know who our main character is, but at the same time, John A. Russo is keeping us on our toes because like this is a story where any of the main characters could die and then somebody else takes over. Yes, and this is where I see a lot of uh, script framework as well, because mm. I think if this was like a 400-page novel, uh, it would obviously get more in-depth. We're not really getting deep into the psyches of anyone. These are people in a terrifying emergency situation just trying to literally survive on the most basic level. But yeah, it, it absolutely helps keep it moving. It's uh, great at taking us around town. I, I also like the different aspects because, of course, the girls, they're young, they're terrified, they're kind of used to always being told what to do, so they're at a complete loss. And you have the sheriff who has experience, but he's also steeled himself to pretty much deal with everything. Uh, mm. And then we get into some darker characters, and I, I, I thought that was great because everyone would deal with the situation very differently. And this book was very honest about it. It didn't feel like it. Um, some writers, they write every single character with the exact same voice. You don't get that with this, which I really appreciated. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like every character feels very distinct on the page. And I forgot to mention this uh, before, like every now and again, in between certain chapters, we actually get, a uh, couple passages of news reports back from 1968 about the zombie outbreak. So I thought those were actually pretty cool that they were there like every now and again in between ch specific chapters of the story. Yeah, all capital letters. And those are actually straight taken from Russo's Now the Living Dead novelization. Yes, indeed, indeed. To kind of just connect those two books together as well so <laughs> and um from here though as the zombies are storming the miller house the girls go upstairs they lock themselves into the bedroom uh karen is absolutely frightened and does everything she can to push the the wardrobe in front of the door so the zombies can't get in but i also like that the kind of show what these characters are feeling in this moment there's a great little passage where karen thinks like Oh, she hopes that the zombies take Anne so her and the, her baby can survive. But then she realizes that's a horrible thought that she just had. And that feels very believable and honest to me as a character thing. Because I think it, if we're put into a very stressful situation, like a life and death one, like that type of thought would come into your mind. Like you'd want, say, a sibling or a parent to be taken away so it doesn't happen to you. Like, yeah, she immediately regrets it. Yeah, it just feels very honest in 
that thought that she has. And I think some people could relate to that if they've ever been in a situation like that. Yeah. And it really shows that Russo deserves credit just as much as Romero does for making flawed layered characters where, you know, even the heroes, you get to see kind of the less savory bits about them. Mm. And speaking of uh, less savory characters, um, <laughs> we uh, then all of a sudden the girls hear a, a police siren coming towards the house and they hear some shooting going on. So they go downstairs and they find a state trooper who, who's named John Carter and his deputy named Wade Connolly. And they also have two other people with them named Slack and Angel. And these are two names that that could easily be ca- names that could have been used in the film version Return of the Living Dead, but given those two names. But uh, And then, of course, they have two other people with them who are tied and gagged up. And they say that these are a bunch of uh, rapists that they're holding. And this is something that's also specific that as the zombie outbreak is happening, a lot of crime is happening in the area. There has been uh, looting, there's been raping. And so so the news says, not only do you have to be careful of the zombies, but be careful of all any criminals in your area as well. And then, of course, they they also bring in uh, Sue Ellen, who is traumatized and the state trooper John Carter says that they found her being attacked. They brought it back home. And so all of them decide to hold up there in the house. As all, So we spent a lot of time here at the Miller house for a little while. But as the story progresses, we find out a couple of revelations. As uh, Sue Ellen starts to come out of her trauma, she lets... Uh, her sisters. And also, uh, I've also forgot to mention this, uh, Sue Ellen's boyfriend, Billy, also rocks up to the house as well. So as they're tending to her, she lets them know that she was raped by one of the men downstairs. And then we discovered that John Carter, Wade, Angel, and Flack are actually criminals who have been going around to farmhouses, robbing them. And the two men that are bound and gagged, who are names Carl and Dave, are actually the actual state troopers. And they were ambushed and they took their car and uniform. It was pretty easy to kind of see that, yeah, this is definitely going to happen. But especially with the Flack character and way on how he interacts with some of the characters. So you know for a fact that he's definitely a loose cannon. There's something off about him compared to sort of John Carter. Like you could at first by him as being a state trooper because he's very calm and collective and he doesn't seem threatening at all until, of course, the true colors of these characters finally uh, show up. Yeah, the oh, this, this scene made me sad because once they come in, especially a guy named Flack, you're not going to trust a guy named Flack. Um, <laughs> and I, I truly don't think Russo was like, ooh, there's a twist, they're the bad guys. I think he, he wanted the audience it to be very obvious to the audience. So we would be terrified for these people. And it worked, you know, you carry in like an unconscious pregnant girl who is just out there alone. And I'm like, Oh no, Oh no. Oh no. And just, Oh God, it, 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 it really was, I'm not going to say masterclass, but a, a very effective, well done building of tension. It, it really, to me, when I was reading it, I felt like 
that the little farmhouse was getting smaller and smaller and the living room was coming in the stairs were and the room they put her in in the second floor and it's just oh the building tension yeah i hated this scene because it was very effective oh yeah and it also kind of replicates what happened in night of the living dead too because it's Mm -hmm. really kind of the only section of the story where it feels like it's almost kind of replicating the farmhouse from the original with that state of tension among the characters, but probably even, but even more heightened given that there are a lot that four of the characters are dangerous people who definitely want to do harm towards the Miller sisters. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it really plays into that natural human instinct of, okay, there's a crisis. Let's all go into the same place together. We can look out for each other and help each other out. (laughs) Uh, In this universe, no. Unfortunately, no. That's not going to help anyone. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And as this is going on, uh, Karen uh, goes into labor a month early. So she's taken up into one of the bedrooms. But what we don't... Well, you find out pretty quickly, unaware, but the characters are unaware of it, in that in one of the other bedrooms, uh, one of the zombies that came upstairs earlier and and was banging on the door went into Bert's room and has been hanging out in there. And the only thing that's keeping that zombie in there is the door, but it's only just slightly closed. So there is that tension there, especially with Karen and Sue Ellen upstairs in their own rooms. Like you just feel like, oh, that, that zombie is going to come out of that room at some point and kill someone. But as this is all going on, uh, Angel, she goes upstairs and then the zombie grabs her, pulls her into the room. And John A. Russo is very descriptive on how the, <laughs> how the zombie kills Angel. Let's just say like, uh, I have to admit, though, maybe he might have been a little too descriptive in terms of how the zombie eats certain parts of Angel. That was an interesting part that I think is very personal to Russo. Uh, When the zombies were eating women, he liked describing uh, kind of what would be focused on an exploitation film. And I thought that Mm. was very strange. (laughs) Not only, oh, yeah. but I think there was one that was like rapturous about how soft the tissue was. It's like, holy shit, dude. <laughs> like that seems <laughs> stuck in my head now. Well, I will admit though, because like on a previous episode of the show and another book I covered for the show was uh, Knights of the Living Dead, an anthology, which is actually a really great book and definitely one I recommend you to check out if you haven't read it yet. It's a short story collection of stories from different writers that uh, takes place in the world of Night of the Living Dead. And one of the stories possibly has one of the most grossest descriptions of zombie eating I've ever heard in <laughs> in anything ever. And let's just say, um, I don't eat shellfish, but that what is described on how the zombie eats someone it has put me off shellfish for the rest of my life. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry zombies ruin that for you. <laughs> yeah, some of these concepts, and, you know, they don't offend me. Like, you know, at some point, a topic this popular, you know, that made creative minds working on you're You're going to get into the pervert stuff. It's just going to happen. Oh, yeah. Hopefully definitely. it's just someone who knows how to write handling it. Yeah, 
Exactly. And you can't, you can't, and I can definitely give credit for Russo for being descriptive in, with the zombie attacks because you don't want to just like, it just get boring after a while if you said, oh, the zombie grabbed somebody and they attack them and eat them. Oh, yeah. You gotta really, and this is a great thing you can do in a book is that you can describe it and go into details and just how gross and terrifying it is where when these characters are being killed by a zombie and especially because like i forgot to mention this earlier like the prologue to this novel kind of talks has a very sort of existential type of opening because it goes into this sort of about life and death and talks about like you know, death isn't really that bad. And I'm like, well, unless you're being eaten by a zombie. Um. <laughs> yeah, but- no, it, it talks about envying the dead. It, Yeah, I. <laughs> it kind of made me think the book was going to be different than it mm. was, uh, which is fine. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, you can work very hard on your plot and your characters as well. You should. But people are going to go to the bookstore and pick it up because they want to read about zombies tearing people apart. And you have to deliver on that. And Russo is no fool. He he knew he needed to put a lot of his energy toward that. And it, it definitely delivers absolutely in that department. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So as all this is going on, uh, John Carter and his gang decide to leave. So what they decide to do is they round up all the dead bodies of the zombies they put them on the front lawn. They set up a bonfire, which keeps the zombies away. And again, it continues like another aspect that was brought up in the original film is that zombies are afraid of fire. So whenever they see it, they won't go near it at all. They grab Sue Ellen Anne, and Billy and they decide to drive off. However, they leave behind the state, sorry, the state troopers, uh, Dave and Carl. They shoot Carl injure him badly and they also leave karen behind upstairs as she is in labor which is such a when all this was happening i was just like wow this is an incredibly harsh and mean-spirited thing that these characters are doing and just to kind of make matters even worse as they're driving away flack he uh pushes and kicks billy off the back of the truck and Billy gets killed and eaten by the zombies. But I do like the fact that at least Russo kind of wrote in a way like, uh, Billy couldn't feel any pain as he was being killed and devoured. So he was probably badly injured that he couldn't feel anything. So while that was happening, he... Which I guess is kind of a a blessing for him in so as, as he's being killed. And then, of course, uh, Dave and Carl... Dave manages to untie himself. He unties Carl. They go upstairs. They find Karen, and she's about to give birth. They manage to get the baby out. But sadly, Karen, who for a little while there, who we think is going to be one of our main characters, or even the main character, uh, she dies during childbirth. And so Dave and Carl decide to make sure that she doesn't become a zombie. So they find a spike and a hammer and they spike her. And they also do it to Angel as well, what's left of her remains. And so the duo with the baby decide to make a break from the house. So they manage to leave, but they also grab a generator that that they had 
that was left behind with them. They go into the forest. The zombies are chasing after them. So they decide to build up a little barrier using cables and all that to kind of make almost like an electrified fence in their area. So they're safe from the zombies because every time the zombies go near the fence, they just get electrocuted and burn up. So they decide to stay in the area that night and wait till dawn to figure out what's to do next. And as as we say on one of my other podcasts, uh, the Two Be Tuesdays podcast, this escalated pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, at the same time though, there's a lot of tragedy in these scenes because. I, I was actually legit shocked that Karen actually was killed off. I honestly thought that she was, given like her buildup throughout the first two thirds of this book, I thought that she was going to be around for a while, but even be the main character of the story. Yeah, uh, I wasn't surprised. Um, I was mm. saddened, but the fact that she was just raped and this was such a high stress situation. Uh, high stress is very dangerous for pregnant women, and I, I can absolutely just, yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, I wasn't surprised, but it was a very affected uh, scene. I didn't roll my eyes and be like, oh, of course. I'm like, geez, like, it really showed, like, the horrible people that put them in that situation, but them still helping her deliver the baby and make sure she doesn't come back. It, it just showed how a lot of people took this opportunity to mimic the zombies and throw away their humanity, except they didn't have an excuse for it. They're like, oh, hey, look, we can be the most base, anti-human, uh, garbage people. And then everyone else is like, well, we're gonna, we know we're going to die trying, but we need to help as many people as possible. And it really is just that classic good versus evil story. And it's shown in these very uh, graphic, um, very personal scenes. Because it's like I mentioned before, uh, it's very claustrophobic in a very emotionally effective way. Like I really felt like I was over Karen. It's like, okay, here, ha- ha- you know, here, have some water. Like you'll you'll make it. It's okay. Um, yeah, even when I, I guess when something wasn't unexpected in this book, um, it seemed to come from a, an authentic place. So it was always effective, even if I wasn't necessarily surprised. I did feel terrible for Billy, though. We didn't see a lot of him, but he was very sweet. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, Billy was a very sweet character when he was, like, around. And the fact that he got killed that way was also very tragic as well. But at least I got took solace in the fact that, like I said, Russo was describing it, the way he fell off the truck and hurt himself like he wasn't feeling any pain. So I can go take that a little bit of solace in that. No, this that... is a world where the best case scenario is you die fast and painless, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Because I'd be like, oh, zombies are taking over? Yeah, just throw me at them. I'll, I'll, you guys get a running start. <laughs> just snap my neck real quick so I don't feel this because I don't want to live in this world. Sorry. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> and uh, from here, though, we go back to uh, John Carter and the gang, and they're driving to the Kingsley estate, who are this rich, prosperous family that live in the area. So they're going to go to their house and rob it next. And during the drive, a couple of zombies come out in the middle of the road. Wade, who's driving the, the, the police car, he tries to dart around him, and then, of course, uh, he crashes the car, and he gets killed. Uh, Sue Ellen and Anne, who are in the backseat, they're totally fine. So John Carter and Slack, they go fight 
find them. They get the girls out. They put Wade out of his misery so he doesn't become a zombie. And so they throw him in their car and drive off to the Kingsley estate. Then the next morning, we go back to Dave and Carl. And they wake up. And this was a turn I was not expecting. (laughs) When they're set upon by a group of teenage boys with bows and arrows who want to steal (laughs) their guns. And I'm thinking, did the book? Just turn into Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and Lord of the Flies. What is going yeah, on here? Lord of the Flies of the Dead. Awesome. Let's follow these dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and so they steal their weapons and they move on to the Miller house. However, Dave and Carl decide to keep pressing on because at this time, the baby is starting to get very weak because it hasn't had any food. So they go to try to find another farm and they go to one and they discover it's the Dorsey's farm, which is the same family who was burying the little girl at the beginning of the story. And as they were, as they're walking towards the house, Carl gets shot in the head, a shootout happens, but luckily Dave is able to kind of let them know that he's not a zombie. He has a baby uh, and they need help. And then of course uh, the Dorsey's open up the house and he goes inside the wife takes the baby and looks after it. Pretty much uh, Mr. Dorsey kind of explains uh, it wasn't him. It was his feeble-minded son who shot Carl. So basically throughout this scene, there's again a little bit of tension here because when Dorsey finds out that Dave and Carl were state troopers, like he's starting to worry like, oh, if things get back to normal, like will he get, he and his son get charged for manslaughter? So since now everything's kind of gone to hell in this world, it's like he's thinking like, well, if something happens to Dave and even the baby, then we wouldn't get into trouble. Again, all these stuff, it's just yeah. showing how these characters are thinking in this situation. Unfortunately, they don't have any milk for the babies. So Dave decides to borrow the Dorsey's car and heads off to a petrol station to see if there's any food. And he finds some manages to get some milk, takes him back to the house. And then while he finds out about the Kingsley estate, so he decides to go on there because he remembers that's where John Carter and his gang were going to go to. So he, since uh, Dorsey doesn't want to give him any of his guns because he and his family need them, he is given a couple of weapons like an axe and a knife, and then he drives off to the Kingsley estate. Again, this is like a, we're kind of getting into the final act of this story, but I'm sort of asked a question to you, Steph. Like, how did you feel about these scenes at the Dorsey house in terms of these characters? I I thought it was a pretty interesting and also something that, uh, <laughs> sorry to keep going back to this, but were it flushed out more if a movie were made of it, um, they can make it very dark and very weird because on the mm. surface, they're a nice older couple on a farm, sensible, you know, people you could come over and ask to help you pull a tractor or <laughs> whatever you might need help with. Um <laughs> But they, you know, there's something kind of off with the son uh, just sitting there. He didn't have a big moment or anything, of course, after Mm. him killing. But, uh, you know, he just kind of sits there ominously rocking in his chair. And they're all thinking, like you mentioned, about, well, I guess we might have to kill everybody if we're going to get in trouble for this. And while he's gone getting milk, um, 
she, uh, she notices that the baby seems to pass away, but then is okay. And that's a very mm-hmm. important scene. And it just adds this tension. Like, yeah, these, these are farm folk. If they need to kill someone to survive, they will absolutely do it. Not that that would happen in a normal situation, but in this situation, they have that survival instinct already in there. Um, so yeah, I, it, it was very creepy because it was like, oh, is this going to be an oasis or evil? It was kind of in the middle. Like they helped him out, but it was at a cost <laughs> for mm. sure. Yeah, it was a very eerie, odd, kind of nervy scene. And it it did a very good job because uh, the Kingsley Mansion that he's on his way to, um, it's really being kind of built up as the final battlefield because it's a very short book. You can see you're getting toward the end. And I, I just think kind of throwing out the reader off kilter like that was a really clever idea. Oh, yeah, definitely. And we go back to Sheriff McCullum, who is at the Miller farm, and he and his men kind of have a standoff with the, the teenage boys, but they manage to disperse the situation so there's no fatalities and all that. What they find out from from them that some people are going to about about the Kingsley estate, so they go on to that area next. So then we go to the Kingsley estate, and this is again the next day, and we find that the dad, uh, Gordon Kingsley, his wife Elvira, and I love the fact that her name's Elvira. So um, <laughs> and uh, their son Rodney are all tied up. Carter and Flack are just rummaging through the house, trying to find anything they can rob. The girls are there as well. And it also goes into how they got there because they also explain that they had, the Kingsleys had guards. Unfortunately, John Carter and Flack, while pretending to be state troopers, managed to trick the guards and they shoot and kill them. And also killing the the guard dogs as well so that was like how dare you um <laughs> from from me exactly exactly and um and then eventually dave manages to get to the estate and so he sneaks up to the house kills a couple of the the, the guards who are now zombies as well flack takes the kingsley's outside and throughout a lot of the the book like flack has this obsession with say zombie feed a lot yeah and he finally gets to do that in the story because he pushes the the kingsleys down to the ground and they're gagged and tied up and the entire family are killed and eaten by zombies but again the kind of show how chilling this scene is since they were gagged dave never could not hear them screamed as they as they were being eaten Yes, yeah, and he noted that actually made it more horrifying, and I thought that was a great detail. Because, yeah, this was one where he didn't actually get too detailed into the death, but I think there's three of them, and just the fact that it was a family, especially a very young boy, tied together in this situation, you didn't need to. Your mind, your imagination is filling it in, and it's very sad and very scary. So it did show, he did know when to pull back. And kind of let you fill it in. And I was like, great. I have a terrible, terribly active, mean imagination. (laughs) And that didn't go well. So thank you. (laughs) But um, what's interesting, though, because even in the lead up before we meet the Kingsleys, they they kind of kind of establish what Gordon Kingsley is like, because he does run a mine. 
And he, it also says that the locals, since he... It kind of does explore a bit of, like, uh, classism in a way, because the sort of the the locals, the working class, really don't like the King the Kingsleys all that much. And But even then, like, even if Gordon Kingsley and his family are this rich, upper-class family, who probably are exactly as the the town locals say they are it is still a tragic scene when they get killed and eaten by the zombies especially when what it also involves their 10 year old son as well which just makes the scene even more tragic but what's interesting though is because i was look i was kind of reading up more about the screenplay version of this book the kind of and from what i gather one of the big changes that john a russo and his co-writer did for this scene, he actually Dave actually saves the Kingsleys in time, so they don't actually get killed and eaten in the film version of the story. Yeah, I'm not. I'm I'm actually not surprised about that because in the book, I was fully expecting him to like come up behind them, take them out, and like yank them into a corner. And when he didn't, mm. I, I, you know, he only had the knife at this point. Or no, he, yeah, he was very. He didn't have a lot of weapons on him and multiple people. So he had to be very, very quiet, and that was uh, very detailed. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess it it would just draw too much attention. So that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that change. That would because I think it would work either way. Um, mm. But yeah, it mentions the posse's. They're like, well, we should see if they're okay, and they're like, oh, they're rich. They have private security. They're going to be fine. And we find out, well, these kinds of people oh, get yeah. their power from the status quo, and the status quo is been thrown into the funeral pyre so they're all nearly as vulnerable as anyone else oh yeah definitely definitely so dave kills flack uses the axe again gets him and thank goodness because flack is a pretty evil character <laughs> within the story yeah then he like- goes inside <laughs> yes and uh, <laughs> then he then he kills uh john carter then he finds the girls and so they figure out what to do next so dave decides to take the car to go get help and he will come back for the girls once he does as he drives on he sees someone in the middle of the road thinking it's a zombie so he decides just to drive and hit it but then he realizes what too late that it actually is not a zombie it's a human being so the guy the the guy tries to jump out of the way he gets hit but then the entire posse they get their guns out and they shoot and kill Dave. But not only that, his tr- his car explodes as well. Yeah, no, this this was the blockbuster scene. And I, I think kind of a, a nod to the original where it's like, no, no, the hero's not going to get away scot-free. Uh, no, we have much more terrible things to do. But yeah, it is a great collision of uh, survival because there aren't any rules. And again, people are at their most desperate and terrified, and it's going to be messy, uh, and no one's going to be there to clean it up. And I, I don't like there, this. Isn't even two hundred pages, and I think I might be wrong about the count, but I think there's eighteen thousand car accidents in it. <laughs> <laughs> it could. And, and it could be. This is definitely the showstopper. exactly exactly and in a lot of ways to kind of mirror back night of the living dead like dave's death in a way is kind of reminded me of ben's death as well and and not surprisingly uh sheriff mccullen and his posse were also involved 
with that as well. So it's kind of like, yeah, kind of showing mirror images of these two characters who we who are meant to be our heroes being taken down by other people who are meant to be helping and rescuing people as well. Yes, is it karma or is it just life? Russo doesn't ruminate on this. He just shows mm. us, he's like, this is what's happening. Yeah, keep Exit. turning the pages. And you're like, okay, I will. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Definitely. But however, though, in the screenplay version, in my research, uh, Dave actually survives in the movie version of this story. Oh, okay. That's interesting because I feel like he kills every other character in this book. So I guess he, he had a little <laughs> bit more mercy for, in the screenplay. Exactly, exactly. So McCullough and his posse, they go up to the Kingsley house. Actually, I forgot to even mention this before. We actually have a scene before they even go there where they actually go to the Dorsey farm and sort of have a conversation with there. And that actually, you know what? I take that back. The reason why they decide to go to the Kingsley estate is from hearing it, the Dorseys. So that's how they uh, find out about that. So McCullen and his crew, they go to the house. They send a helicopter further ahead. Anne and Sue Ellen. Now, Anne is, is the oldest one, and so she's definitely the stronger of the two, while Sue Ellen is still feeling the shock and trauma of what has happened to her within that few days. So they hear the helicopter, and I was on edge throughout this entire scene because given what happened to Dave, I thought, something bad's going to happen to Anne and Sue Ellen, isn't it? And so... Yes, like they, when they came out and waved at the helicopter, I was like, no, no, don't do it, no. <laughs> Thankfully, it didn't take that. Uh, he actually subverted our expectations there, but oh boy, I was biting my nails. Yeah, especially with because there was a bit in while the helicopter's going around, they see a bunch of zombies and somebody from the helicopter is shooting a gun at them. I thought, oh no, this is definitely not going to end well. Um, <laughs> but luckily they do notice that Ed manages to wave them down to let them know that they're alive. And the helicopter radios in McCullen about it. So McCullen goes up to the door. And even then I'm still on edge because, yes, he's going up to the door and opens it up. And I was still on edge thinking, is McCullen actually going to shoot one of them in the face? I'm a little concerned right about now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you then, know Russo was doing that on purpose. That was very sadistic. He's like, <laughs> people are going to be expecting the worst. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, luckily, nothing bad happens to Anne and Sue Ellen. So they, they're very grateful that Mikhail finds them. And also Dave earlier kind of tells uh, the sisters about what happened to Karen and that she had her baby, the baby's at the Dorsey's house. So one of the first things they do is go to the Dorsey house. So once they get there, again, this is keeping things on edge is that when they get there, they find out that the house has been attacked. It's been smashed in. There's blood everywhere, but there's no bodies of the Dorseys. So when it's left ambiguous what happened to them. Like, were they killed and their bodies were dragged out and eaten by the zombies? Or did the whole attack sort of overwhelm them and they just sort of ran off from the house? And again, you're kind of on edge because what is what happened to the baby? So some of the troopers go upstairs and they find the baby asleep on the on the bed and they take the baby downstairs to Sue Ellen and Anne and they're very grateful that the baby survived. But then the book kind of ends on 
I guess a kind of, at least for me, kind of ambiguous about the baby because we, as we cut, Russo talks about the baby as he says, like the baby is barely eating anything. It's starting to get weak, and then he makes it ambiguous that if did the baby die at a certain point and become a zombie itself? Because one of the last things he says in the book is, and I'm paraphrasing this, is that when Anne and Sue Ellen look down at the baby, its eyes are widened, but it's breathing. So it kind of makes me wonder about whether Russo is saying, oh, the baby is now a zombie. But then again, I don't, if it was a zombie, it wouldn't be breathing. So I'm like, I guess it is left on an ambiguous note about the baby. Like, but that being said, though, uh, Stephanie, your thoughts on this final act of <laughs> the story and also like the ending yourself. How did you interpret what John Russo was trying to say about the uh, the fate of the baby? Uh, well, something definitely happened to that baby, <laughs> possibly a precursor to the zombie baby in the remake of Dawn and the Dead. I don't mm. know. But yeah, I have it right here. And it's. She looked at the baby and tried to smile, but it didn't come. She wondered why the baby stared with its eyes so wide, so lusterless, so lacking the sparkle of new life, yet it continued to breathe. So Mm. I don't know if he's hinting that maybe it's a hybrid, like brand new life coming into that and maybe getting the infection. It's maybe a hybrid. Maybe that's why he was throwing in the word humanoid uh, so often in the book. I don't know. But he was definitely uh, kind of poking at a new idea there, in my opinion. That's how I interpreted it. In a way, Mm. uh, I read it as very bleak uh, in a humanity sense, but in a story sense, definitely opened you up for a sequel. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it, it's it's interesting way, and again, it you know it I, by leaving it on that sort of note where you're not exactly sure, it definitely makes you intrigued. And I guess depending on what type of a person you are, if you're a hopeful person, you can see it as the baby is totally fine. It, it, to be fair, that baby has gone through a lot since it was born. Yeah, so honestly, maybe it might be severe malnutrition, and he'll mm. be completely fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nice that you can give it a very happy ending if you would like to. Yeah, exactly. Or you could be uh, <laughs> like a lot of us. We, you could say, "Oh, yeah, that baby is totally a zombie now. That baby died at some point and became <laughs> a zombie." The camera pans. Whether- we are at the nursery at the local hospital, <laughs> and all the babies <laughs> are making very strange noises. Yeah, you could definitely go either way there. Exactly. It, it can see John A. Russo should write a sequel and call it Nursery of the Living Dead. <laughs> oh my we have so many things to pitch to this man. Yes. Oh <laughs> exactly. can imagine the screaming? Because baby screaming is bad enough as it is. But the, but zombie baby screaming, that'll be No, no, no. Wow. i'm imagining like some of that jurassic park t-rex like worked in there a little bit oh Oh, boy i'm gonna have fun nightmares tonight (laughs) well hopefully if there there were zombie babies it's they probably won't be in line with the dawn of the dead remake zombie baby maybe they might be more in line with uh peter jackson's brain dead version of (laughs) the zombie baby 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that's more slapstick, more zany. Still horrifying, but you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But um, yeah, so that is the novel, Return of the Living Dead, and our entire summary of the entire story. And as you can see, audience, this story is very different from the movie version that ended up being made. And like I said, the John A. Russo did write a screenplay version of the, this story, so and that is available as well. So you can give that one a look and see how it compares. Like the only kind of two big main differences that I've read doing my research is that Dave survives and he also does, in fact, save the Kingsleys. There's probably other little things here and there he probably changed as well. So I'm kind of curious to give that screenplay a read and find out how it compares. But what I think is also kind of interesting, too, is that this isn't the only book that John A. Russo wrote with uh, Return of the Living Dead of the title, because when the film version came out in 1985, John Russo also wrote the novelization of the film as well. Hey, don't let an opportunity go by. Exactly, exactly. And it does show he's a good sport, you know, that he could mm. acknowledge that it was a good story as well, and that could be fun to explore. Uh, the more horror comedy kind of splatter punk uh, approach. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it also kind of making it very different from Romero's films as well, like with Romero's being these kind of very weighty, thematically themed zombie stories. Uh, Russo, at least with the first film, makes a zombie film that, well, definitely has some themes in it, and it's definitely much more zanier, much more crazier, and much more fun as a zombie film, and that kind of reflected with the films in the rest of the series. Probably not number three, because that one definitely touch, took a much more serious and dark turn with that story. Sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on our conversation of the novel, the original 1978 novel of Return of the Living Dead. And uh, Stephanie, what are your final thoughts on the book overall? Um, I think I, I like that we talked this over because I think I did appreciate it more and it, it, the uh, structure of it came together for me a little bit. Um, but again, you know, it's um, pretty straightforward. It's pretty Spartan in its writing style, but it's, it's interesting it, it's a great part of the history of the films um and yeah if uh you're in the mood for zombies this is a, a quick read that will definitely give you that gore awesome and uh, i guess for my final thoughts like i would say it's the best zombie novel i've ever read but again we got to take in the context of at the time of when it was written before we kind of got so many different zombie stories throughout the years since 1978. But I think as a story on its own, I still very much enjoyed it. Like it, it, it can be very dark. It can be very gross. And <laughs> it also can be very um, mean spirited and also touching as well with certain scenes. And also Russo still continues on some of the elements that were kind of established in the original version of Night of the Living Dead with some of the themes, the tone, and also just specific things that the the zombies do from that film are kind of tran are transported back into this story. Like, yeah, some of the characters could have been fleshed out a lot more, 
But I think he manages to kind of write them the way to make every character feel distinct when they're on the page. So no character feels like an exact copy of another character that uh, was featured in the book. And also there's just some pretty memorable moments throughout. So yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of book that I would definitely say everyone should definitely give a read. And it's interesting to kind of compare it to uh, the film version that would come out seven years afterwards. Because again, they're so completely different. And the only thing that really kind of connects the two is John A. Russo and the title. But I think, yeah, I think it's an enjoyable little hot zombie novel. And I'd definitely say it's uh, worth checking out if anyone is interested. Yes, uh, I also like comparing it to Dawn of the Dead because Russo is kind of like... Uh, everyone got lulled into a false sense of security and Romero is like, it never stopped. It only grew. And that that's an interesting uh, comparison as well, I think. So yeah, I, I w- it's definitely worth your time if you're at all. Well, if you're listening to this, you should definitely read it. <laughs> well, I'll put the link to the novel in the show notes for this show. So if people want to buy the book, they can. But also the book is on Audible as well. So people can give that a listen to there if they just want to hear the audio version. So yeah, I guess that could be a wrap on this episode of Beat versus the Living Dead. And thank you so much, Stephanie, for coming on the show and talking about the, the novel with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I was a, in a bit of a reading slump and this got me right out of it. So uh, I appreciate that as well. <laughs> so thank you. Definitely, de- definitely. I, I, I hope... Hopefully, uh, I always try to help out anyone if I possibly can. So I'm happy that at least uh, doing prep for this show managed to uh, get you to get back to reading books again. So (laughs) You're a hero and an angel, okay? Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So, uh, but before we uh, wrap the show today, uh, Stephanie, where can people find you on the internet this week because i know we're on all different type of uh social medias these days so if there's any in particular that you want to give a shout out to uh feel free to do that and also any other things out that you want to plug as well uh yeah the only ones i use are blue sky and twitter and i'm scrawfish on both of those and everything i write Mm -hmm. and all these wonderful podcast shows i appear on uh will be there awesome and uh, if people want to find me personally, they can find me at my Twitter page at twitter.com slash beadjamine. And I refuse to call it x.com, but it'll always be Twitter for me. And plus, it exactly. just makes things a lot easier. <laughs> and uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd as well at letterboxd.com slash beadjamine. And also, you can find all my work and other podcasts that I co-host over at Super marcy.com and also on the super network on all podcast streaming services everywhere and of course you can find all things bead versus the living dead on twitter at twitter.com slash bead vs tld i'm also and also the podcast itself is also on blue sky as well at bead jemine and bead vs tld as well so you can definitely follow on there too if you have blue sky and also you can listen to this show on all podcast streaming services everywhere and give a rating and (laughs) and review for this show and if you do leave a review i will make sure to read it on the show as well so yes that is a wrap 
on this episode of Beavis the Living Dead. I hope you all enjoyed this one. And keep a lookout in two weeks' time. October is coming up, and that is going to be a huge month for this podcast. I can't give away what it is exactly yet, but I do have a lot of awesome stuff lined up for that month for this show, so definitely stay tuned for all that, because I'm still working out some of the kinks and all that before I can divulge what they are. But one thing I can divulge is on the next episode of this show, episode 22, we're going to be talking about the film version of Return of the Living Dead with the 1985 entitled only adaptation, <laughs> The Return of the Living Dead from writer-director Dan O'Bannon. So stay tuned for that one, everyone, and I'll see you all then. See everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bead versus the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at BeadVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.